Okay, so you've heard this one a thousand times already today. But uh, let's do it one more time for you. It's called Ever New. and you're listening to MoMA's magazine podcast. In the early 1960s, singer, songwriter, and composer Beverly Glenn Copeland left the U.S. seemingly for good. A transgender black man whose obscure electronic sound was way ahead of its time, he insists he's always been focused on the future, writing music for generations to come. So it may come as no surprise that his music has found a new audience today, largely among the young ears it was intended for. He remembers his own creativity being nurtured at an early age. Growing up in a house filled with classical music, Copeland began training as an opera singer at age 15, but later set out to make more experimental music in the 70s. While the music world caught up, his talents manifested in a recurring role on the Canadian children's show Mr. Dress Up, and as a writer for Sesame Street. But catch up it did. My name is Taja Cheek. I'm an assistant curator at MoMA PS1. Glenn, who are you? <laughs> Still working on that. Um, my name is Beverly Glenn Copeland. Folks normally call me Glenn. And I make music. This season needs you now anyway. And I won't ask you when you're leaving or how long you're planning. Glenn, you are here for the first time since the early 60s, here meaning in New York City. Yes, that's correct. I think I lived here for one year. I think it was 1966. I haven't been here since. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Very momentous and meaningful to have you here. When I was first speaking to some of your team, I thought that the possibility of having you in the flesh was something that I should just forget about. (laughs) What actually made you come? Whoa, that's quite the question. Well, first of all, I'm 76 years old. I mean, I've already lived my uh, rescore in 10. At this point, it's all special to be alive. So that's one thing. I wanted to come back to my cradle country one more time because I've been living in Canada since 1961. So this was an opportunity, but I really had to think about it. Is it a sense of closure for you or a sense of reckoning with past feelings? No, I would say it's more the environment in a larger sense where a person like myself who's transgendered is not necessarily safe crossing the border sure. at this time. Even though it is my own country, there is a lot of very difficult things happening at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I understand that. A sense of safety. Safety, yeah. This is maybe 
a, a large question or a leading question, but yes. do you consider yourself a symbol or an icon or a beacon for other younger queer and trans people and musicians? I, know, I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as a grandparent because I did a lot of parenting in my life and I have a lot of spirit kids who I helped to grow up and who lived with me for long periods of time. Grandparents are very special in the way in which we as humans have always lived until very recently, which is in multi-generations. Because your parents are busy out there trying to make a living for both the grandparents and the kids. They're involved in practical work. Grandparents have the time to go, Oh, now, darling, oh, now grandpa <laughs> understands and grandma understands, right? And kids need that. They need the unconditionalness as well as they need the things that their parents can give them. It makes for a complete concept for a child's education, heart education and practical education. So that's how I think of myself. Especially because young people said to me, all we hear from our parents is that we're selfish. And, oh, okay, well, maybe that's the parents' perspective, but that's not my perspective. I had a grandparent who just, I adored. My grandmother was an amazing singer, and she liked to sing things that were semi-classical. So my father inherited this incredible musical genetic that was going through that family line. I mean, this is like everywhere in my family, right? Yeah, it's in your DNA. It's in, it's in the <laughs> DNA. It's like, you know, yeah. It's Ancestral. Yeah, totally. Uh, anyway, my dad, when he was about 24, no, I was about three years old, he suddenly realized that he wanted to start to play the piano. But he was interested in the classical repertoire of Europe. So Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Chopin. So he started taking lessons. Well, turned out he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this piano that was in our basement of our home at that time. And uh, my mother realized that he was going to play the piano when he came home from teaching. That he was going to sit in the basement for five or six hours and just play. And so after about two or three years of that, my mom went out and she bought him a Steinway Grand big machine and she stuck it slam dank in the middle of the living room. <laughs> my father must have flipped out. Anyway, so that's the sound. That's what I heard as a child for five hours a day. That informed where I went. I eventually turned out that I had a, a voice, and so I went for training with that, and then that led me to, you know, studying more and more and more, and eventually I ended up in New York studying with a woman named Eleanor Stieber, who was the grand dame of the Metropolitan Opera. She was a Mozart specialist. I didn't care for Mozart at all, but she wanted to teach me for free, so... <laughs> I said yes and moved to New York. <laughs> anyway, I ended up not caring for opera at all, partly because it's like I was expected to play female roles, and I wasn't a female. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the fact that all females died at the end of every single opera. Like, give me a break. Right? Sure. So <laughs> it's like, it like, whatever. So I ended up... Um, Going back to the man that I had studied with for four years before, who was a leader singer, which is the song repertoire of the last part of the 18th century, but primarily the 19th century and a bit into the 20th century. So I studied that, and I uh, started my career singing that. And then one day I just went, wait a minute, I've already lived this lifetime. I know this stuff, that's how come I, I sing it so well. I know it already. 
And there's all kinds of other things I want to do in this lifetime, which I've been listening to African music, especially West African music, since I was a teenager. I've been listening to Chinese music, music from India. Yeah, I was listening to everything. And I just, I was so attracted. I, I didn't hear any music that I didn't think was astounding. So I wanted to start to write music that would bring it all in if I could figure out how. Yeah, it's interesting. The familial relationship is something that I've witnessed from afar also. When I first spoke to Ricky, who performs as Yata, about the possibility of them performing on the program that just happened yesterday, we'd never spoken about your music before, but I just had a hunch that they loved it. I just kind of knew intuitively when I called them on the phone. The first thing they said was, I feel like Glenn is my trans dad. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, and it's so interesting. And I've heard that from a lot of people who are really impacted by your music is that it sort of transcends you being a musician that they feel a real personal connection to it mm -hmm. as if that's you are family. Well, that's wonderful because that's basically how I look at your generation. It's that you're my kids, bye! Golly, my grandkids <laughs> not going to protect you. Somebody tells you you're selfish. Eh -eh. <laughs> nope. I was really struck yesterday about the ways that you had been writing in similar ways or had been channeling similar things for a very long time and it hadn't really occurred to you until you were yeah. looking back a little bit. Yes, yes. Is the process of writing music for you still feel like it's just an extension of the ways that you were writing music when you were writing keyboard fantasies? Yeah. I mean, you're well, playing things. I'm happy for people to hear pretty much anything that I've done. So a lot of people are listening to La Vida, a lot of, in the color of anyhow, it's way up there. You know, mind you, it's, it's the one that I relate to the least in many ways. But that, that has been a teaching to me, too. That's been a teaching to me. Remember th that I was once a person who was in relationships and I was young. Because <laughs> you, you tend to forget. Right? And that's important because young people are supposed to be feeling that way. I've told you that I don't uh, feel that I write music myself. Um, I feel like I sort of co-write it and it just sort of comes through. So um, one day uh, this piece came through. Um, uh, I woke up in the morning speaking Italian, which I do not speak, and um, at the end of the day I no longer spoke it. This is called La Vita. think of it in terms of co-creating with the universe in that mm -hmm. way. But at some point, I started to understand that things were being sent to me that I felt were beyond my capacity as a single person who had studied music formally and all the rest of that stuff. But I've always been future-focused or now-focused. It's like, what's interesting to me now? Like, I don't tend to look back and reflect much. And there's disadvantages to that, and there's advantages to that. But one of the things that happened just recently is that my wonderful manager and the head of the publishing company, to which I joined, <laughs> the two of them showed up <laughs> in my tiny little studio with barely enough room for the three of us to get in there. And they began pouring over everything that I'd ever quote unquote written and they found these things and so i was like looking at the words and listening to the words and i realized wait a minute this was before i started my spiritual practice and it's the mm. same thing i'm talking about the same thing i'm 25 years old and i'm talking about the same thing 
So that's what I've discovered, because I'm not retrospective at all. But that made me have to think about that and look at that and see a life in a larger, you know, it's like I really believe we've all come here for a very specific purpose that has to do with our creative abilities, which we all have, and has to do with what we wish to heal in this time. And um, I've started to understand that that has predated my conscious understanding. If you don't consider yourself retrospective in the ways that you consider your past work, are you archival? Do you save um, every scrap of paper? I'm curious what some of those materials look like. Do you write on pieces of paper that you find around the house? Do you have a specific time of day that you write? Because I am very obsessive about keeping things, I have endless amounts of three-ring binders. I have that much paper, if you put it end-to-end, that are scores that I've written. And then I've got boxes of stuff that are cassettes. Some of them cassettes for machines that no longer exist. And, you know, <laughs> it's like... And then there's there's also boxes of things that for big reel tapes, right? And then there's boxes and boxes of stuff on discs. So I have discs, cassettes, large reel-to-reel, and paper. I'm not going to live long enough to categorize all that stuff and still That's continue to write. I'm, my, I'm still writing. I'm writing all the time, right? I can be anywhere at any time. And all of a sudden, something comes through. I'll be minding my own business. And suddenly there's like, it's just the only way I can explain it is like, there's like a, a wind that blows through my head with melody and concepts. And I'll literally, I'll give myself over to that. And then I put it down on, on tape as quickly as possible within my computer. And I also write it on staff paper as quickly as possible. When that kind of rush is through, then I stop and I go back to washing the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> then I come back to it later and I look at it and I go, how do I play this? How's this go? Like, I'll, I'll hit one chord and I go, and, 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 oh, 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 it's this. Oh. <laughs> I can actually be music, but it's like, it's like I look at it and I think, what has this got to do with me? This is amazing, right? I literally feel that way. This is amazing. And I think, yeah, I didn't write this. <laughs> this is beyond my capacity. This is like... Yeah, okay. Mm. So it's it's one of those, you know, it's like this yeah. this sense of awe. I'm left in awe when I when I go back to it. That's amazing. It feels very visceral now. I always think of like Prince who mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, at Paisley Park had microphones in every single room of his house just in case because he'd always get struck by inspiration and have to record at any moment. Exactly. <laughs> totally get that. Most of my friends are visual artists because visual art is the art form that I would choose over and above music. If I had to choose between my eyes and my ears, I would choose my eyes so that I could see visual music, so I could see what is, for me, the most arresting of all the arts is visual art, for me, personally. Which is strange, isn't it, when you think about it, Mm. right? But I figured that I will always hear music in my head. (laughs) So that's okay. It's interesting always hearing you speak about your interest in all of these different genres and Mm -hmm. the ways in which it was completely illegible to the music industry at that time. You talk a lot about your relationship to classical music and how that was something that you experienced a lot as a child and how that funnels into your music. I also grew up with classical music and was especially interested in French Impressionists. Oh, me too. So great. And the ways that there's so much 
cross-pollination there. Like, yeah. I've been listening to a lot of gospel and R&B my yeah. whole life, and that's so fugal. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways in which, you know, the French Impressionists, that sense of harmony is so related to the birth of jazz. Absolutely. And it all yeah. is, <laughs> yeah. it all makes sense together. Yes. But it it's does. such a shame that the industry just didn't understand that no, at that time. No, didn't understand it, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, we don't all understand anything till we do. Yeah. But I think the way that people listen to music now, especially, you no know, one listens to one genre of music. Which is why anymore. my music was found. Yeah. Because your generation, their ears are as big as the whole earth. And they're going, oh, I'm going to listen to some of this and some of this. And my playlist includes all around the world, right? And then when they heard this music, it made sense to them. It was just one more thing that they loved. But I had to wait until you all were grown up. Because there wasn't an understanding of world music. There couldn't be. People didn't have access to being able to listen to it. They didn't grow up in a world where you could have a friend who was living in a country on the other side of the world from you. We were more limited in our, our physical scope, right? So you y'all came along and went, oh, we're world citizens. And we listen to world music. We listen to everything. Everything. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> it was like, oh, finally, yay. You know, I also think of someone like Nina Simone, for example, who, mm-hmm. you know, of course, was so deeply embedded in yes. classical piano yeah. and was mm-hmm. not allowed to study at Curtis. Um, and because of that, ended up making music that also was in conversation with jazz. And I wonder if that was someone that you had thought about at all. You just hit the pain point. I grew up in Philadelphia. Curtis was yeah. right, in, right in Philadelphia. I didn't know that they didn't let her in. Oh, bad, bad bunnies. <laughs> yeah. Bad bunnies. <laughs> well, Nina Simone, I mean, of course, I listened to Nina Simone as a part of my own personal, you know, that I was listening to. Her her music was incredible. And I saw her suffering. Eventually, I, I understood the suffering that she endured and some of the reasons that would have contributed to that. I wouldn't say that she influenced me particularly. It wasn't that. But at some level, everybody's influencing you that you're listening to, right? I mean, you know, old Blue Eyes influenced me too, right? (laughs) I mean, there's certain things I listen to his, his, you know. Come fly with me, come fly, let's fly away. I think I, I just put that on repeat. I think I was about... 14, I just put it on repeat for a while, right? (laughs) Yeah, so, no, I hear what you're saying. She was an amazing being. Amazing being. And um, the world was not ready. You've talked a lot about being forward-looking rather than looking to the past. Are there things that you are looking to do or accomplish that you're actively thinking about or actively trying to do right now? Is this a leading question so that I can put it out there? Anybody with an orchestra, folks? A really good orchestra. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. That, that's where I was going with this. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've, I... Uh, a lot of the things that I do, I hear it orchestrally, not only with just orchestral acoustic instruments, you know, but really fine played European orchestra is part of what I hear in almost everything, even if it's a, a tune like In the Image or, or, well, of course, La Vida, that's obvious. But there are other pieces that I'm writing now that are funky. They're so funky on some level or another, but they still have cellos and French horns in them and, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm totally excited about that. Just wanted to make sure you got that out to Boy. the universe. Thank you. <laughs> to the <laughs> listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the magazine podcast. This episode was produced by me, Hannah Gurma, with thanks to the magazine podcast team. Isabel Castadio, Natasha Giliberti, Rafael Tadros, Prudence Pfeiffer, and Leah Dickerman. You were just listening to La Vita by Beverly Glenn Copeland. And earlier in the podcast, you heard Ever New, Color of Anyhow, and On the Road. And many thanks to our guests, Taja Cheek and Beverly Glenn Copeland. You can find more episodes of Magazine Podcast at moma.org slash magazine or wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy your life, Tom.